All right. How's it going there? This is Darker Days Radio, episode number 82, with a very, very special interview that we're going to be having tonight. Uh, of course, I am one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined first by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hey, uh, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. How about you, Mike? Tons of gaming, tons of gaming. Actually, we just recorded a uh, Gamma World session over the weekend with Chig and Matt, two of our hosts. It was pretty goofy, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, we'll hopefully be releasing that as an actual play coming up in the next few weeks. But Ah. uh, yeah, just uh, to kind of keep things going here real quick, we are joined by two very special guests that we finally have here on the show, Tobias and Martin of White Wolf Entertainment. How's it going, guys? Doing great. Thank you. Tobias here. Good to speak to you. Awesome, awesome. Lots of gaming in my life as well. Uh, live action role playing variety for me. I've been down in Elsinore playing Inside Hamlet, uh, the eighth run of uh, the game Inside Shakespeare's Immortal Play about the death and decadence in the burlesque, in King Claudius' burlesque court. Super happy to uh, to be on there with you guys. Excellent. Good to talk to both of you because last time we caught up with you was, uh, of course, in um, Berlin uh, for World Darkness Berlin and all the gaming that was going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had some some great talks about you about your uh, your technocracy experiences. From- <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, um, it is great being here, blood and souls, and take it away, guys. We are super excited to fill you in on some of the stuff that is happening. So, yeah, just to jump right into it, I guess, with the uh, kind of interview portion. Of course, White Wolf Publishing has been under your your guidance for about two years now, which is pretty exciting. But for anyone that doesn't kind of know who the two of you are, uh, can you give us some of your your kind of street cred and, uh, you know, experiences in the gaming community or even outside of it? Sure thing, yeah. So um, I'm more from the computer games uh, part of the uh, industry. Started out in 96 as a programmer, but only did that for a couple of years. I ended up uh, being a manager and product manager and producer instead. Uh, my claim to fame, I guess, is uh, running the Dice uh, Stockholm Dice Studio during the years we did uh, the first Battlefield games. And um, then I worked for many years as a uh, as an agent helping computer games developers and publishers doing business. Um, and um, what I like with this industry and what I, what I like in general is is making business and make things happen, get entertainment out to people so they can can enjoy it. That's what I I really like and uh, appreciate with this. And um, working at White Wolf, that's you know quadrupled <laughs> that uh, mm. part of my life basically so I'm, I'm super thrilled in being here and uh, not, not not sure how much street cred <laughs> these things gives me but i, I have I, I think battlefield accounts as a street cred in this in this circumstance i, I hope I, I mean it's it's uh, i've been there in the the back of the uh, the days when we we started up the games industry really in in, the, in sweden and um i learned a lot over the years but the good thing with this industry as well is that you never um are fully, um, you know, fully educated or, or master it fully because it always changes and develops. So, um, yeah, super, super thrilled and being here still and, and continue to develop uh, White Wolf. Yeah. And having great use of your amazing contact network. It, it's kind of ridiculous going to things like E3 or GDC and so on with Tobias because it knows like all, a lot of people in a lot of the companies that have been there for a long time. And also, like identifying which of your old colleagues are actually old white wolf uh, people yeah. as well. Yeah. There's, a, there's a ton of them out there. 
And that's the interest, interesting thing with uh, World of Darkness as well, because there's so many people that had the experience back in the days, right? So you can now, being invited, people come up and say, hey, I played these role-playing games back in the days. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been more on the um, in the uh, role-playing and particularly live-action role-playing side of things. With a strong emphasis on research and TV, actually, in the latter parts of my career. I think somewhere around my like mid twenties, I look back on sort of what I do and what I've done the most, which was basically <laughs> play tons of role playing games around tons of LARPs. And I realized that sort of my calling is in life is getting adult people to play, uh, sort of overcoming that cultural barrier we have uh, against pretending to be other people, and trying to spread the sort of the, the core of role playing taking a position as another character and learning something by walking a mile in someone else's shoes and then spreading that to other other media formats. So I've been um, heavily involved in what is now known as the Nordic live action roleplay community or the progressive international live action roleplay community, um, working with pretending to be other people in order to understand them and maybe get uh, a bigger sense of what's going on in the world through empathizing with more political scenarios and more real-world scenarios. I've done educational games and educational LARPs for institutions as varied as the uh, Swedish parliament to teach kids about how parliamentarism works by having members of parliament, for instance. Uh, I did some stuff with the Swedish alcohol monopoly on sort of the, the, the dangers of uncontrolled alcohol consumption. And uh, I've done things with, with Swedish television and so on and so forth. So I've, a lot of my work has been taking the ideas from World of Darkness and, and Dungeons and & Dragons and Stormbringer and Call of Cthulhu and the other games that I love, the structures and techniques, and then taking them out to a broader set of people who might not have been in touch with me. I've done two interactive TV shows, uh, one with Swedish television and one and European co-production. And for one of them, The Truth About Marika, which was secretly based on Brave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for that TV series, uh, I got, we, we got awarded an um, international Emmy for Best Interactive TV Production. So that was, uh, that was pretty fun. But for me, it's this, it has, has always been something that's been lacking in working with this broad and sort of socially conscious and progressive work. I've always dreamed about going back to like the first thing that inspired me to do these things in the first place, which is really the work of Mark Hagen and Andrew Greenberg and so on. All of my interest in role-playing games as something that can change people and open people's eyes and make people reflect on their situation. That comes from my, uh, my late teenage years when I was obsessed by Vampire and Wraith in particular. So yeah, that's a super short summary, <laughs> I guess. Excellent. Right. Given that you've given an overview of your both your kind of your backgrounds in gaming, whether it's computer games or with LARP and tabletop and, and so forth, and also kind of gives us an overview of maybe how all of that works into this kind of idea of transmedia. I guess that leads us in, Mike, with our first question then. Absolutely. White Wolf is, of course, White Wolf Entertainment. It's not White Wolf Publishing. Uh, and so, is in a sense, is a, a kind of a reboot of the White Wolf brand. And, of course, uh, 
the IPs that it holds. So how does White Wolf operate today and how is that different to how it operated um, before and during the CCP merger? Because, of course, some people may well expect White Wolf Entertainment to be doing certain things, which right that White Wolf used to do in the past. But, of course, you have a different kind of um, uh, way of operating in this day and age. Yeah, we we actually um, we changed the name from publishing to entertainment to emphasize that. So um, I think the big difference is when we looked at this building up this business uh, and trying to build the world of darkness and and for that matter other brands into these what we call participatory transmedia IPs or brands. We 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 knew we couldn't have all the resources internally to make that happen. Um, no, you know, real studio of computer games or film or TV or or whatever does that these days. There is no a book no book publisher with with uh, authors employed, right? So, you, if you look at it from that sense, you need to reach out and find uh, the right people and the right companies to work with. So, setting this up um, pretty much exactly two years ago as a licensing studio or a licensing company was was the right thing for us to do because it allows us to to work with the right computer games publishers with the right authors and with the right book publishers uh event companies and so forth to to and coordinate them to help us build the 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 brand of world of darkness bigger Mm -hmm. um we would never be able to have all people internally do that Mm -hmm. and if you look at how white will started out originally you know as a, a a a magazine about role-playing games, right? And then um, a p- publisher of their own work. It's kind of become a, a natural progression. And um, it's been difficult sometimes to explain this uh, externally on how how we operate and how it's different from before. But I think in the reality, when people start seeing all the new products coming out and so forth, and they already see the great work from from Onyx continuing and Binance Studios and so forth, they, they see that we, in no way we try to kind of close down the um, all the great um, creators out there, but rather emphasizing the work that they do and help and support them. Yeah, and, and coordinate them on a story level uh, as much as on a business level. So telling one story told by great collaborators, great artists who don't necessarily have to be employed by us. There's no way that we could start and make like a fantastic third person action game, the kind of that, that focus on cyanide studios are planning for werewolf, for instance. But it's perfect for us to coordinate the main story, the characters, the big beats of that story and make sure that matches perfectly with the upcoming edition of Werewolf the Apocalypse as a tabletop game, and also to metaplot developments in Vampire and so on. So we are a story-driven licensing company that one that strives to add value to every single component by tying them together into this massive transmedial story. And that we the sort of the the project name for that you could say it's one world of darkness, coordinating all of these different creators into telling one grand story. I think that the, uh, when they started out back in the days, uh, they didn't have the, the vision to build a world of darkness. It, it kind of happened and grew, grew on the previous white book. We have the luxury of starting 
with a universe like it and and can can take it from there and forward so we really um we're really fortunate in that sense uh, to be able to to build upon that and uh, coordinate the story as martin said yeah it's, it's what you could call like a native participatory transmedia product it's not like when marvel or disney make transmedia projects from comic books that's a medium that's like inherently it's linear but for us white wolf has always been about many different expressions and many different creators and a high degree of participation from the fans in every single detail. So we feel basically they're just like cleaning up and formalizing the way that they have worked before and making it in an optimal strategical way to get as many beautiful, dark and thought provoking products out there by the best possible collaborators. Does that make some kind of sense? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> cool. You know, kind of leading off of that, in the past two years, uh, White Wolf Entertainment has brought live action, that whole experience, to the forefront of its marketing, which is interesting because in the CCP days, uh, live action in a lot of ways was kind of lagging behind the, uh, the tabletop material and the, uh, the hopes for the, uh, the MMO. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, uh, Tobias, you're new to, to live action, I believe, and Martin, you're quite experienced. Since taking over White Wolf, what has surprised you about the World of Darkness live action experience? Well, first of all, when first time I met Martin and he, he shared his experience with me, I started seeing immediately what he was talking about because we see it in so many other forums out there right now, the, the type of of engagement, the way you engage, for example, in the Disney park with uh, their IPs there. This has grown and developed a lot over the years, and um, so I was very thrilled and, and got the chance now to to play in several larks here. Um, but but the, these are also your, I mean, you lost your lark virginity at the end of the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and that was that was an amazing experience, uh, really uh, uh, transforming in many ways. Because first of all, I, I realized how much more accessible it was than I than I imagined. It was in a way easier. Uh, it was also in a way scarier than I ever thought it would be to get in there. But as you get over that threshold, uh, it's extremely rewarding as well to everyone who, who, who tried it out. They, they know what I mean. And I think our, our mission now is to make sure that we can do our part in helping more and more people to, to realize mm -hmm. what a good form of, of entertainment and how educational and how you know, good it can be for you as a person to, to uh, as Martin said before, walking somebody else's shoes and, and try that role on. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy. It's a core part of our business because it's, um, it's a very important part for our, our customers. Hmm. When you say easier, in, in some ways easier, because I, I assume you mean some ways easier than tabletop role playing because you play it physically and just put your clothes on and do what your character does. So yeah. sort of like, children's play for adults yeah but also yeah. when you see it um <clears throat> if you ever tried it out and you just hear about larping uh it's like most of these things when you when you see it um from another side and you have not tried it before you think mm. it's more difficult than, than yeah. it actually is so um i think over time people realize that it's much more accessible than it than it seems to be mm. so yeah yeah for me it's the encounter with the deeply passionate and very long-lived mindside theater community that has sort of opened my eyes to a lot of things. Sometimes Nordic LARP innovators and so on can think that we got everything locked down and we know everything and we're best at everything. And that is clearly not the case. The way that 
campaigns are run within the Mindside theater community, the longevity of the of the plot lines and the characters and the, the the sort of the depth of integration between players' lives and the campaigns and so on is truly impressive. Uh, and it's so I think it's it's something that sort of both sides, if you want to, Mindside theater has been traditionally a bit separate from other forms of live action role playing. And I think that's a shame. And I think by introducing a new way to play, uh, Vampire being more similar to traditional LARPs, less rules and so on, I think we can have a lot of more people being interested in the Minds Eye mm. Theater format as well. Mm. So for me, it's like it's a great chance to take the best of two worlds and make them uh, and make them merge. And also, we realize there's so much innovation left to do. Uh, Minds Eye Theater has a very strong very particular format of play, uh, campaigns, characters that grow in power and influence, uh, often the, the similar type of venue and so on. But there's tons left to do in things like street play that we tried out at, uh, in mm -hmm. Berlin, for instance. How do we integrate technology with these games, for instance? Uh, can we do like virtual adapt games to use actual VR and, and so on? Can we use cell phone technology to make resolution of of combat and, and rules easier and so on. So like this first encounter has just given us like a ton of new ideas. But particularly we learned so much from the established groups like Mind Size Society and uh, One World by Night and so on and how they are managing long-term high involvement play. No one else on the planet has that kind of experience that these groups have. And I think there's there's a lot of innovation Left to be done. We early on in the White Wolf days here for me and Martin, we ended up in in some sort of uh, discussion with the community and some of our, our fans about what was the right form of LARPing. And we we really tried to make it clear that we we want to encourage all kinds of play um, uh, and let people experience this in the way that that fits them, uh, but also make sure we we innovate and find new ways of, of playing as well. So. Um, yeah, there's what the future brings in, in terms of LARPing is what excites me the most with this. And, and also, of course, when it comes to LARPing as a awareness raiser, people look fantastic a lot of the times when they are in character and in costume. And just by showing an image from Convention of Thorns or End of the Line, without saying any words, you can instantly, to a non-LARPer, a non-role player, see that well, these are very engaged players. They're putting tons of effort into their uh, both their portrayal of characters and how they look and, and how they speak and how they move and so on. And it feels authentic and sort of it kind of looks like a TV show. Holy shit, can I be inside one of these dark, terrible soap opera dramas? <laughs> it's like, yes, you can. So in that way, I think uh, if you, if you like, spoke specifically, the question was about it's in the forefront of marketing. I think it shows the passion that the World of Darkness fans have without having to say any words. And that's why I think it, it's so useful uh, to show people what this is. Cool. So uh, on to uh, a little, something kind of related to marketing then as well. So in the last year, White Wolf has, let's be honest, encountered some tricky issues, to put it mildly, regarding, say, the tone of how the material's even been written and how fans have engaged with that, how they've interpreted that. Mm -hmm. So... 
and this also come, I think in some ways relates to some of the older White Wolf books that came out, which were or some of the artwork, which was at the time was interesting in the fact it had that shock factor tactics. It really got across that visceral nature of the setting. But do you feel that in this day and age that some of the things that were maybe acceptable in those early days of when role play games were still evolving and also when you know mm. White Wolf still kind of young those kind of shot tactics are, are less permissible now and that's in is is that informing you of what you how you present challenging material to a modern audience i think the uh the question is sort of two part here um and on, on one aspect so like what place does shock value have within the world of darkness i don't think it's primarily a shock driven world it's more about asking deep and profound questions about the human condition through the vehicle of monsters. So I sometimes describe World of Darkness as a, it's a highly moral game featuring highly immoral characters. It, uh, from the very beginning, when I read the, the um, essays that Mark Hagen wrote around Vampire, that's where we go back to, when we try to find sort of what is the right tonality and what's the right way of doing this today? I'd like us to, to read a, little, a short passage from uh, Marx's like, Declaration of Intent from Vampire. And he writes that Vampire was written in order to discover the nature of evil. Evil most certainly does exist, but it's not as cut and dried as some would have us believe. The age-old dichotomy of good and evil, black and white, is false. Vampires is an exploration of evil, and as such, it is unsafe. You're digging deep when you play this game. This game was not meant to be comfortable. It was designed, designed to provoke and inspire. It was designed to make you think and feel, to dream and aspire. And for me, there's a long, long, long gap between that kind of thinking uh, where you're playing a character in order to explore the boundaries of morality and, you know, pure shock value and the illustrations of Dr. Totentan's wading in blood wearing Nazi regalia and so on. Mm. Those are not really the same things. I would say that some of the White Wolf books from the old run kind of veered away from the moral exploration. Uh, that was very present in the very earliest uh, vampire books. And that is specifically what we're trying to get back to. An intellectual game that doesn't sort of, doesn't write off its players as immature or unable to separate the very sort of, the, the very clear distinction between character and character morality and player and player morality. Mm. So, for us, it's important to have a game where you can play horrifying monsters, but as players, we can make moral judgment to those characters and say, this is absolutely not the way you should behave in real life. Um, I guess that also, that also means uh, when you, it, is that also, um, I guess, a challenge with that kind of material, with having that material and, and addressing that and giving those, is part of giving the tools to the players to have different ways to, engage with that topic in a way that's comfortable for them because obviously depending upon your player group there's mm. that you have to establish as a group collective where your line is but that doesn't mean you can't deal with a particular topic it just 
it it, it changes how I guess how um, in your face it eventually becomes. Um, of course, I think that Nordic LARPing and sort of LARPs have dealt with this a lot. So it's not only then do you verbally portray these atrocities, but you actually sort of physically do it through touch and you know whatever it may be. So there have been some quite sophisticated systems for consent, tapping out, increasing yeah. intensity, decreasing intensity. And on the tabletop side, we've also seen great development in things like, uh, oh, I can't really remember, John Stavopoulos X card, for instance. Yep. That is a way yep. of deciding level of comfort in the playing group. And I think in the new additions, we will have explicit instructions and sort of how do you deal with this material in order to a make sure that monsters stay monsters and b that play is enjoyable uh, without yeah. being you know comfort food. Well, the darkness isn't really comfort food, and here it's like I have I have a moral perspective that says if you would make these vampires nice, <laughs> if you they are blood drinkers. They risk killing. They are, per definition, uh, vampires are people who use extreme privilege and power and even supernatural coercion to gain vitality from others. They are really fucking fishy characters. And when you start painting them as sort of good and heroic and fantastic, you run the risk of whitewashing some really, really nasty human tendencies. So I think we will spend some word count on how to address these issues without making the vampires lame or at worst, like hyper-romanticized, uh, but at the same time have a fun, fast-paced, enjoyable game that nobody around the table will sort of puke and then leave the table. Um, and that's we have developed a lot of those techniques since the 90s. Uh, where a lot of that was just left in the hands of the storyteller. I think we have a yeah. great chapter for that, um, to work on some of that. But perhaps that, that sort of gives a bit more insight into sort of where we come from. We're interested in, in maintaining the exploration of evil and maintaining a highly moral game about highly immoral monsters. It reminds me, I mean, one of the things I, I sometimes, de- you know, depend upon the type of story you're wanting to tell with in, a, in the form of a horror game. Because sometimes you need to reinforce that separation of, as you say, the player and the character. And that as players, in some respects, you're, you're taking enjoyment in the story of mm-hmm. seeing how bad your character can be. But also knowing that they will get their eventual, um, you know, they will there will be some payment they have to make for their actions. And seeing how that plays out and what... The lesson is to be learnt from that, and it reminds me of one of the things that was in um, in Fading Suns uh, when it first came out, uh, which is they have passion play, which is where you look at the you you, you as a group of players you you re-examine um, the the play that you've got the the story you've gone through or that session you've gone through, and you're almost looking at it now as people that are reading a book of events, and you're interpreting what does that story mean to your to you as players as if you were characters a hundred years on from those events it's kind of so you can derive some further meaning from what at the time were 
your characters in space gallivanting around, f- you know, fighting eldritch horrors. But actually, there's some possibly deeper meaning that can be drawn out of those events. So I think, yeah, there's there's definitely tools like that you can use to help reinforce the separation of player and character, and also draw out and tease out these um, deeper soul searching questions and lessons. I mean, this, this, this kinds of stories are not uncommon today. I mean, most HBO stories today are about horrible characters, but the stories themselves are quite moral, whether it's House of Cards or Game of Thrones and so on. Those are not nice people. But no. <laughs> they do tell stories about what's the price of that. And in Vampire, that's a core mechanic. Humanity has always been that core mechanic. It's like, sure, you can go to town and have your gratuitous slaughter fest. But you know what? There is the system will track your moral degeneration. Whether that's a true reflection of how sort of we work as humans when we do terrible things and um, derange our morality and so on, that doesn't really matter. But it gives a sense of there is a cost of evil, and there is mm. that there's a perspective. And and I think the the passion play example is great. Power kill is another great example where you take. The, the, the session you're played, and you play it out as a psychologist talk. <laughs> you talk to the yeah. characters as a psychologist, and, say, and then you would diagnose the characters. And like in Vampire, probably a lot of the characters would be diagnosed either as like uh, sociopaths or like pe- people with strong, <laughs> strong emotional issues. But the vampire is a predator. The vampire is a monster, no longer human. But it has tons to tell us about what it means being human. And the uh, the fine line between uh, between good and evil it's not clear cut it's a steady stairwell of degeneration once you've done one thing it's easier to accept the next and so on so highly moral game about highly moral characters that's at least for vampire in particular some of the other games have other big and flammable questions but i don't think that any of the world of darkness games are entirely um, entirely non-controversial. There's none of them that yeah. have no fuel for thought. They all have these perspectives. Like in Werewolf, we like to, to maybe put more focus than before on sort of what is the price of, of saving the world with violence. It's sort of this, and so sometimes that has been unreflected in some of the yeah. latest material. And I think that's what you refer to when you have this, how we're going to deal with the, the, the gratuitous madness of some of the books because i think some of them did lose sight of that exploration of, of being a monster and the moral nature of the games um but now we're already launching them as like a strictly 18 plus ip we're not interested in doing teenage material for teenagers and so on we want to tell mature stories for mature people and then it becomes uh, easier to have this kind of discourse and I truly hope that it's it, it, it's still uh, a given that the player is not this character. And yeah. whatever values you portray as a character will not brainwash you as a player. Because, you know, that position, if you play the evil wizard, you will become an evil Satanist. We, we did hear that opinion quite a lot during the 80s and 90s. And that was thoroughly demolished by psychologists and sociologists and gamers and so on. It was like, that was unfounded paranoia. So 
while it is it's super important to have this division, it is also something that we do. We don't, we're not brainwashed by our fictions. Uh, that, that's just not how it operates psychologically. Um, we can learn from them uh, and we can be really cautious that we have a nice time around the table. But I don't think we need to be afraid that we will become ravening, bloodthirsty beasts by playing vampire the masculine. Uh, I think that we are good enough at separating fact and fiction uh, uh, from that being a risk at all. Okay. So following on from that, let's um, we'll move on to more about where Vampire the Masquerade and One World of Darkness are going in terms of setting material, I guess. Um, so in some respects, last time we, we met in a, in a major way, interacted with Vampire the Masquerade through the revised edition. For me, personally, because when I got into Vampire the Masquerade, that was, what, 1996? 1997 i think that's when revised came out so um and at that age for me i i feel like i'm of the age that's kind of that kind of had that sample of that kind of y2k kind of millennial fear aspirations but also having also did my degree and everything and went to university and so forth and found my adult self almost mm. on the other side of the year 2000 um there's also kind of that I have that thing of like, well, Y2K and all that kind of fear is kind of nothing. The years just grind on. The millennium didn't bring us really any big changes in some respects. Um, it's just more of the same shit. Um, so how are you looking to modernize the Vampire the Masquerade and World of Darkness setting in the way that it still captures that the end of the world is coming, but not as you, not maybe not in the way that everyone was expecting, and also tap into the subcultures of the modern age, because a good number of subcultures which were maybe iconic to and appeared within um, in Vampire, within Mage, within Werewolf, have in some respects died off or, and waned in strength or, or have in fact maybe grown even stronger. And we now also have many other different counterculture uh, groups, um, you know, the idea and, and so forth, whether it's be kind of that Zeph culture that you get in South Africa with um, that's linked to their kind of rap music. Um, yeah. Or it's like, uh, I couldn't really think there's mostly so much. I can't even, I can't even put my finger on it. There's mostly more now than ever because of the internet that people have, yeah. have exchanged ideas and fractured and come together and fractured again. So how are you going to tap into all that and feel fresh and modern, but yeah, the end of the world is coming? But it, that's the thing, right? So when I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, we were expecting, uh, you know, or at least fear that the atomic bombs would be dropping on us uh, at any point in time. Uh, then in the 90s, you're like, okay, war is off. That's going to be good. Um, and now it's it's um, going in the wrong direction again, I, I feel. And uh read this morning that when it comes to insects, we're down a third than we were like 20 years ago. If I yeah, yeah. There's some really, really scary kind of doomsday things going on. And um, um, I, when I got kids uh, six, seven years ago, I didn't think that I would fear for their future, but today I do. So I think there's plenty of materials for, for mm -hmm. kind of very dark, doomsday type of, of themes here uh, still unfortunately <laughs> yeah i mean that was i mean it was almost a joke around the office when we started to when we started looking at which ones or like which of the end game scenarios in 
in the world of darkness, like like sort of actually happened, <laughs> and and so on. You could say that the Gehenna War has been raging in the Middle East for like the last fifteen years, and as for werewolves, it did not become less actual. It became like much much more burningly urgent. Yeah. Now that sort of the worm seems to have the planet solidly in its grip, and global warming being like a clear and present danger, you have as you say, species death that is uncounted for. And yes, we have a war of ideas where sort of fundamentalism and fanaticism is back. And it seems that we, we, we did not think that flat earthers and anti-vaccine, uh, like old, old uh, traditional religious ideas would resurface and, and sort of kill people actually and so on. So, so I mean, the, the horrible answer is that we kind of thought it was going in the right direction, but then it didn't. And now we're back in a, in a position that very much looks like the 90s, where we have doomsday scenarios that are actually look like they will happen. On the other hand, if we take like a more positive look at it and say it like it's a, it's a long process and it's something that there is always hope and we have better education among women uh, than we've ever had less starvation and so on. So of course the world has gone in a, in a new direction. And as you say, has culturally bloomed and become a much more international world, a much global world. And the answer to that, I think, is like, A, as like two 40-year-old men, th this is not our story to tell. That's like the first thing. It's like there needs to be <laughs> other voices. There needs to be people who are actually out there who are engaging in, in yeah, as you say, maybe like, uh ugandan metal music for instance it's like i know very little about that scene i can be interested in it but i can find someone who knows something about it and ask them and talk to them and have them their voices be represented and i think that the, the global perspective is probably the biggest change that's going to happen that it's a bit less western centric and a bit more sort of a, a global story looking more at what happens in the middle east and looking more at the situation in yeah, say Africa, South America, and so on, rather than being obsessed by the American West and East Coast, which is sort of the traditional fields of play for world darkness. So that's number one. Hmm. Get the right people uh, involved and get the right advice, because they are the ones that are young now and know what's happening. And secondly, I think that these subcultures that we sort of, oh no, like goth death and so on, that's the truth with modifications, like A, in in the US, goth culture is a wide and diverse thing that's changing into like a myriad little subgenres. Like what's the connection between juggalos and the goth scene and like uh like wave babe and sort of these darker electronic music styles. It also kind of still is there, but it's more balkanized and uh, diversified and broken up into smaller things. And in Europe it's clear that sort of the the inheritor to the throne of dark subculture is probably the sort of the Berlin techno scene and so on, where the music is often quite industrial, quite monotonous. There's a lot of black, there's a ton of tattoos, there's a lot of piercings and sort of this connection to the kinky queer scene and so on. So I think we can find new and really, really strong scenes uh, that will feel as on point as uh, sort of uh, goth and some of the 
like yeah, darker metal things and so on, the, the tribal metal stuff and so on that was going into the games in the 90s. I mean, for me personally, it's, like, it's important to keep a connection uh, with what's going on right now. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I try to spend at least like one, <laughs> one weekend a month to go to some obscure, weird, illegal techno party or check out the sort of a gypsy Balkan music rave in some suburb or, and so on. So trying to keep that contact and seeing, like actively being out there and actively experiencing these things and always asking the question, like, where would the monsters be in this situation? How would vampires or werewolves interact with the thing that I am now taking part of? So we keep our spies, <laughs> spies out there, uh, being ourselves partially, but also most importantly, taking people who belong to these groups, taking people who have a, a strong voice. I mean, we're managing this, mm. but we're not the people who are actually doing the the heavy lifting when it comes to writing or uh, and so on. That it's important that those voices are very broad. And this is where the licensing model comes in, right? Yeah. Because it allows us to work with with um, people and companies um, all over the place who can represent this uh, mm. in a way we would never be able to. Mm. Uh, but uh, there is also a balance between a new and old. I mean, we have a heritage we want to yeah. keep on honoring as well, right? So uh, the only CEO veto I can been put, putting down here is that there needs to be at least one skinny pu puppy song at each of our events. But that's <laughs> that's as far. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I, when I was that, to assist the Mercy gig, now that would be <laughs> in Malmö, because of course, Sister of Mercy is my favorite band in the world. What the hell would I do as lead storyteller if it wasn't? Of course, I run up to like Ben Cristo and Sister of Mercy, like, oh, we love you, and can we use your music for our games, and so on. So I mean, that, yes, that, that's sort of the, the, there are some things that are eternal, and I do think that sort of the, post, the link between post-punk and vampires i think that is eternal i do think that i, I see a ton of joy division shirts mm. now when i go to rave for instance and people are listening to typical you know bernheim style pared down highly sophisticated uh, electronic music they take their inspiration from front 242 frontline assembly joy division mm. Bauhaus, and so on so there's a lineage there's sort of a lipstick trace that with the kinds of subcultures that I believe that vampires would attach themselves to, for instance. Um, and it goes for the same thing. It's like where the, there's the darkness in the sort of very, very tame and very real and gritty, uh, like gangster rap and the, the portrayal of life in the streets. That's definitely a scene that vampires would attach themselves to. So asking the questions of where do the monsters belong and where have they been historically and tracing that lipstick tra trace throughout the subcultures. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something we do very consciously. And I think in the upcoming Anarch book, I think you will see a lot of treatment of how vampires deal with individual subcultures and how they, uh, how they have an interplay with them, how they affect them and how, them, uh, how those affect them. So yes, we're spending a lot of time thinking about this, obviously. Uh, and, but I think that the answer is that we shouldn't think that we know what, 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 is, what is cool. We need to find out what is cool now.
I think that's the, the core message. Nice. Yeah, and I think uh, especially when you take a look at uh, what your new art director, Mary Lee, is doing, you know, just with the aesthetics of uh, V5, I don't think people have to be worried about seeing a very dark aesthetic for uh, vampires and the world of darkness in general. No, I mean, possibly a more realistic aesthetic in one way. Um, mm. but it's, it's sometimes I say that the world of darkness interpretation we're doing is rather than, you know, sprinkling gargoyles and uh, eternal rain over everything always we rather look into the dark corners of our world that are there and say like okay what's going on there shine the light into places where we are not always comfortable looking as sort of the people we are um and look into dark places dark situations rather than saying like everything has this blue tone filter of pretend darkness we look at the real things the, the, like yeah real dark situations and hey if you look at a, a city like prague or if you look at a city yeah i mean notre dame and so on there's no need really to you know build a super gothic punk world it's already there yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and i think increasingly as time has passed also we live in some sort of weird cyberpunkish collision between high technology and ancient ideals and so on that in a lot of ways feel more gothic punk than than ever uh and yeah i mean the biggest joke was sort of when the election in the us was we were simultaneously like a lot of us like quite concerned about the outcome of the american election but on the other hand we were just looking at each other it's like okay so the werewolf plot is going to write itself now more or less it's like yeah that's a it's a perfect world of darkness situation where you know a old pentex executive is elected as president it's like in what world except for the world of darkness would that happen or the fatberg under london right that's the very yeah 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 there's a fatberg there yeah, um. yeah. <laughs> in the same way that you guys always take uh, usually have this thing about here's a real urban legend or here's a real thing from the real world that feels very, very world of darknessy that is something yeah. we're doing with almost the entire world of darkness now uh, i mean I, I i listened to your podcast for the first like for the first month that i, I went to work i listened every day biking in and that was always the sort of the segment that that sort of sparked my creative uses the most and i think that's a lovely storyteller tool when you realize holy shit any piece of bizarre news is the perfect source of inspiration for my chronicle or for a character or for a scene. And it gives something that these fabricated, uh, the fabricated gothicness can never give you. Um, so that's... Well, yeah, it, it, it means, um, I mean, I think the strength of that, and I think this is one of the things I really liked about... Um, I'm going to, because I'm going to plug, I think it's one of the strongest books that came out actually for Chronicles of Darkness was Shadows of the UK, because all the writers included uh, Howard Ingham and Dave Brookshaw, who are based over here. And I read that and I was like, yeah, I, you could feel, you could feel that all of the inspiration there was, it felt right. It felt local to to use it. It needs to feel local and that way, the horror becomes a lot more personal. And I think that's something I, I am really eager to see become more prominent in, in Vampire the Masquerade and One World of Darkness. And I think with some of the things you hinted at at World of Darkness Berlin with how 
you know the changes to the the, stru- the vampire structure and of course their reaction to modern technology and they become more like city states again again it's almost as if they they're going to have a they're suddenly going to start noticing all the evil local you know shit nearby that's in the shadows the folklore that they may have well overlooked mm-hmm. is going to be right there on their doorstep because it's going to be wanting to take them out as the apocalypse gets ever closer so it's going to be good sweet yeah um i mean yeah that's that's a little thing of some things how we try to relate to to modernity and try to make this something that is here and now and yeah mm-hmm. i mean as you said it's in the big it's in the big themes and so on but yeah please go on um i i, I have a suspicion that we, we could we could talk forever about this. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, Mike. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, listener John Rintamaki asks if White Wolf would like to get any other original developers involved uh, in V5 or One World of Darkness beyond just uh, Mark Ron Hagen. Uh, he specifically was curious about maybe getting uh, Seder Phil Brucato involved with Mage. And I know Chris and I are big fans of Andrew Greenberg and his work on vampires. So any possibility of uh, working with or consulting them? This is something that we, of course, have been it's a conversation that we have with these guys. I mean, especially with Justin, I think is the one that I've had the conversation outright of that mm-hmm. because he so fairly recently has done done a ton of work for for vampires, especially like Anax Unbound, which is a fantastic book, and so on and so forth. But then we're like, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that we need to find our voice and we need to find our tonality for this, and then sort of then you can think about bringing bringing greats back. But if I, if I would write a book on sort of the ultimate book on vampire conspiracies, Andrew Greenberg would make sense. Uh, it's, mm. I mean, it's also that, that, that I said, like, link to now, forward thinking. So if somebody has ideas that feel fresh, connected to the real world and so on, we have no way ruling out working with the, the great old ones, so to speak. And that goes <laughs> directly to Mark, who has like spent a ton of time in Georgia as a political consultant for like inside politics, inside the in, close to Russia, meaning that he has this like new and fresh and interesting insight into something that sort of an area where vampires would definitely be dabbling. So we feel that he has like these great things to add. And that's, I mean, that's one example of someone who has, it's like our favorite, our absolute ideal candidate is someone who has either worked on World of Darkness a long, long time ago and then went on and did something completely different. Or there was a fan really early on and went on to do fantastic things, maybe movies or novels or whatever, maybe things that you know have gained some acclaim or have at least like a high level of quality and now want to return to World of Darkness. That's our absolute ideal person. Somebody has a voice of their own, but also experience of the, uh, of the franchise. That's, that's the real luxury in working with the business development part of mm. this IP as well. Is when we are out there talking to people in on Hollywood or uh, computer games industry or whatever it might be, right? We run into these people who, who played this in the nineties or, or later and and have a great passion for it and and now have ideas how they can use their their current occupation, whatever it might be, to to express uh, their love for for. But it's old property, but in a new way, right? Yeah, so I mean, it's, there, it's there are really creators cool. out there that got started with this. And then, I mean, some people are doing 
massive things and so on that have been inspired by this. And that's the, that those are the people that were hunting also. But yes, uh, we're absolutely opening to, open to them coming back. But I think it was Justin who said, like, I wouldn't want to work with this. It's like, bring me in when you have a style, surprise me, make something different, and then we sort of can, can go back to things. I mean, Phil Bucato is specifically, he's doing amazing work on, on uh, Mage 20 now, where he is like, mm -hmm. he's getting the, like, really has developer reins of that, and it's getting to be such a personal and laser-focused product in his voice. Uh, and that's amazing to see. Uh, I mean, I, I love reading that stuff. Um, and, and sort of, but it, it creates a big question for us, like, okay, so how do we do Mage, a fifth edition, coming off of this? It's like, do we just take this and port it into our plans, or do we do something that nobody expects? Uh, and that's, I mean, that, those are the kinds of challenges you want. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's lovely seeing, seeing new ideas on his old own work. Uh, because I really think he's bringing something, a fresh perspective to, to Mage right now. Awesome, outstanding. Mm -hmm. Chris, you want to take the next one? Yeah. One of the things that you said at World of Darkness Berlin was that there won't be retcons, as it were, to any of the material in World of Darkness, but more kind of soft reboots and changes by taking advantage of the fact that, in some respects, we've experienced the lore and we've interacted with the lore of the World of Darkness through more than likely unreliable narrators and yeah. biased opinions. Yeah. So what, can you give us a, at least a taste? Because we know that we are expecting some things, mostly through uh, Be uh, Beckett's Jihad Diary as well. Can you mm. give us a taste of the sort of areas in which you feel Vampire and Werewolf have, are being re-examined to, to help make it more approachable to a more diverse audience? Because again, this taps into the things of like how, in some respects, the clans and the, the werewolf tribes were very much a bit stereotypy in some places. Mm. I mean, there's, uh, the, 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 the sort of the core of the question is, of course, that we need mysteries and we need unanswered questions. Uh, it's, it's hard to create sort of a, a uh, seventh season following a sixth season where everything has been revealed. This is, of course, the meta reason why we sort of want to re-examine a lot of things. Um, but then when it comes to vampire in particular, we already have a situation where it is very hard figuring out the actual core truth of the matter already as it stands. Um, and a lot of the old books are really good at, at saying this is just an opinion, this is, a, this, is this clan's theory and so on. And I think that's lovely. And Beckett's Jihad Diary makes a great job of sort of compiling all of those different views of the, the early days of, of vampires, like what is the actual truth of the antediluvians and so on. But with, there's a ton of mystery and nothing is really, really setting stone. And there we have a fun thing that we actually do have answers moving forward. So this will be, we, are, we are really looking forward to the next, so to say, three, four seasons of Vampire, where truths will actually be revealed, maybe for the first time in Vampire. And it's like, the sense, remember that we are discounting Gehenna, we're moving to before Gehenna. 
So it's like you don't have the actual absolute truth about the identity of every single antediluvian and so on, because that's more, um, a lot of that stuff is revealed in the Gehenna books. Um, but yes, uh, we do have firm answers and we do have firm directions because we do think that fans enjoy unraveling this mystery. So that's one answer where it comes to, to vampire, which is pretty easy because it is such a, it's a mess of contradictory opinions. Werewolf is a bit harder because it has a very simple truth at its core and it's portrayed as sort of the very, the Garou nation versus the horrible worm. And there's very sort of a clear cosmology. Uh, and there, I think we're taking another perspective and seeing okay, all of these stories we heard about the glorious heroic fight against the worm and the Garou nation and so on. That's the Garou's own stories. And of course, as all verbal and um, yeah, so all, all oral tradition, it can be slightly exaggerated and it can be made to make them look better than they actually are. If there's any question that we want to add and deepen inside Werewolf, it's what's the price? What's the price of all this primal, pure, unthinking violence? Uh, sort of what's the cost of that? So there, I think we're we sort of yeah we're looking at um, maybe re-examining whether the werewolf's ideologies is is perfectly correct. Is there spiritualism perfectly correct? It doesn't really matter. They have a super strong belief, and the price of their conviction is probably what we're looking at more there. I think that's the core things that we're doing with um, uh, with vampire and werewolf. Uh, mage is its own huge <laughs> yeah oh, of course yes and and that's that's our next question right here ah. um <laughs> uh, matthew webb i know i understand you have to play your your cards kind of close to your chest on this one because you haven't revealed that much about mage yet but matthew webb uh wants to know a bit more about it because back in the 90s mage explained a lot about the world of darkness cosmology yeah. werewolf explored it a little bit but mage really set a lot of it in stone so you now have this opportunity to be designing the entire one world of darkness as a unified setting with all these different uh, creatures in in this uh, this this franchise, and how do the cosmological answers of Mage play with everyone else? I think it's it's, it's exactly as you say. You it's it's more useful to sort of divide the world a little bit between these um, different factions, different creatures. So, where the vampires are dealing with, you know, questions of politics, morality, uh, faith, perhaps, uh, that's, they are not really at all concerned with, you know, reality on a quantum level or reality on an absolute, you know, divine level, the way that the mages are. So I don't think it would make a difference to a vampire, whether they sort of like, okay, here's some mage that says that reality is all belief, but yeah, how does that change anything for me? Probably not. It's like a, a, um, a theologist has very little to talk to a, um, an engineer. There's, there's very few points of connection. So if vampires are, the, the, the questions in that, in their mythology or around morality and so on, in werewolf, we have questions of animism and spirituality, ecology and resistance. And to them, of course, they do, they have such a strong worldview. It doesn't matter how many 
mages that tell them like, like no you're only seeing one perspective and it's really all about balance and the worm isn't all that bad they always go fuck you it's like i know what i'm doing i'm i'm, I'm a child of gaia I'm, I'm i'm set on this world to to kill the worm it's like bullshit so they would probably not believe the mages no matter how hard they try to say like but 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 and then mage itself i think has a lot of, of has a theme that is perhaps the most relevant of all today since it's about the power of belief and the power of ideas and if you take the core truth that the world of darkness as you know belief defines reality from sort or, or like drawing on sources of dynamism stasis and destruction the world is a web work of belief that is a lesson i think is more relevant today than ever before because fanatical faith is rising choosing to have a very strong belief system is a thing we do today perhaps without realizing that the belief we choose does shape the reality we see experience and ultimately put out there in the world. Mm. So I think that this is a super strong case for Mage being a uh, yeah a game about what we choose to believe in. And I don't think that sort of overrules the other games. They're just about different things. Um, mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think there's some really strong questions that Mage will, will have to address. Because one of the things oh, yes. I was never too keen on with the the because it was prevalent i think more in the first edition and perhaps in second edition was mage was very much originally you know science versus science versus magic and mm-hmm. as we got revised and i think as it's gone on it's it's more about uh about control versus freedom because obviously you have the technocracy who want to deliver a controlled safe environment versus the traditions which want to deliver the 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 ability to choose your reality and there's some really big i would say global paradoxes that have to be addressed so for instance global stock market crashes uh the prevalence of you know the technocracy has pumped out tons of wonderful pharmaceuticals and yet we have super viruses you know mrsa and all these other things and then for the majors you know they're gonna have to deal with the flack of like that they've got people now dying because they believe so absolutely in anti-vax and that you can you can cure autism by making your child drink bleach and all this this stuff which isn't really magic it's complete uh it's the it the people who look at it think, oh, it's uh, some some remedy. It is to them kind of magic. But actually, the major sit for what it is, which is complete hubris uh, and ignorance. I think within both factions, they've got some deep questions to answer because, of course, there's parts of the technocracy that see it as a cracking monolith and the danger of absolute control. And the traditions have got the danger of, well... You know, the world has modernized and in, in some respects in very nice ways and safe ways because we don't have demons and ghosts and everything, you know, gallivanting around the countryside, you know, reaping and and killing people and taking souls and so forth. So um it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting going forward for all of the factions in Mage. 
But I think uh, if you compare it with the society of today, right, it's a paradox, right? Because we have more kind of easy accessible media than ever, right? With Facebook yeah. and, and all kinds of channels, right? And in the same time, it's easier than ever to kind of manipulate uh, an election or, or whatever it might be, right? So it's such a it's such a paradox, and we're living in in the midst of this. And I think Mage is a great IP to to reflect on on that state as well of, of what's actually going on in society. Mm-hmm. Maybe the maybe the theme of Mage is news versus fake news. That's the that's the <laughs> new theme going forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolute. What is absolute truth has always been a question for Mage, and it's sort of it answers in a very sort of West Coast postmodern philosophy way originally. But you're absolutely right that we might need to re-examine that because you know choosing to believe in the happy, glorious, uh, hippie alternate medicine way is actually not going to cure your child. Uh, you know, that's, there, there's, there's definitely a darkness there, a rising darkness in the traditions that I think could be utilized. Um, mm. there, there's, there are, I mean, we clearly see negative effects of faith and believing in the supernatural today. Uh, I, I had hoped that we would be rid of, you know, large-scale fanatical religion at this point, but it's like, it's back with a vengeance. The Celestial Chorus, it's like, how are they treating sort of the rise of mega churches in the US and like hyper intolerance towards certain groups within the Christian church? Or for that that matter, like the the rise of certain extreme forms of Islam Mm -hmm. that are having really fucked up ideas. Those are ideas of faith and belief, and those were the good guys, you know? So definitely, big questions and how does what's the relationship between technocracy and and the and artificial intelligence and oh, how God, yeah. <laughs> how controlled is our behavior already on the internet it's like are these algorithms predicting what we're going to do based on our behavior or are they dictating our behavior already Th- these are the kinds of like the things that we think about when we go into mage looking at things like Horrible things like you know, uh, Rocco's basilisk and things like that. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a ton of, of ideas about technological development, development of how truth is seen um, and accepted, and how, yeah, everything that doesn't fit within a selected belief system is just moved away. So mm. there's, it's it's harder to just have this, you know, glorious embrace the uncertainty of postmodernity that the, the early versions of uh, of mage has it, it is much harder to take that position that's correct but i think that i mean phil is making had doing a great job of trying to find sort of a, a balancing factor and so on uh, maybe our version will be more focusing on the terrible shit in both <laughs> of these factions because we do see world of darkness as at its core, a horror setting. Mm. Uh, mm. It does, even when it goes fantasy, it's it's dark fantasy. It's very dark. It's bordering on horror. So, sort of my reading of Mage has always been closer to you know things like Imagica or Great and Secret Show and so on by Clive Barker uh, mm. and such things. Uh, or I mean, then then. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson or The Invisibles, uh, which is more sort of more heroic and more super heroic. But yes, super interesting and really, really, really good question uh, also. But yes, I think this sort of 
this tearing of mage has absolute truth, and yeah. werewolf <laughs> has secondary truth, and vampire has no truth at all. I think you can pretty much say that we are re-examining that and say, no, they have truths about their different areas of expertise. Yeah. When I, when I talked to my, my brother, who's a cognition scientist about this, he said, like, look, why the hell would the vampires even believe that mages exist? I only knew there were biologists working with my field of memory research when I happened to meet them at the conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's like the world is big. There's no, there's no one, you know, uh, alt-awakened group that shares all the cosmologies of every awakened creature in, in, in the world of darkness. It's just as messy and contradictory and layered and so on as our own world is. Uh, I think would it be hard pressed to find sort of a unifying mythology that we all believe in our in our world, and in the world of darkness, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> nice, I like it. I think some people with the the whole Gehenna War were kind of worried um, that in V five that you may be in danger of like establishing vampires behind every single bad thing that's happened since nine eleven. So uh, vampires react to the bad things that have happened uh, yeah. rather than being behind them. I mean the the war on terror, uh, you know, homeland security, and sort of the NSA's ability to match records and so on, that doesn't come from vampires. It comes from them trying to find uh, the perpetrators behind 9-11, who are not supernatural in the world of darkness. Not at all. It's the, the same scenario happened there. Um, but the vampires are very, very negatively affected by it as sort of these groups, these intelligence groups starts putting one and one together and saying like, holy shit, it's not only terrorists that we're hunting here. Look at this weird bank transfer that's been happening steadily to the same accounts for the last 120 years. What the fuck is that? And so on. So it's the consequence of surveillance society that affects the vampires, not the yeah. vampires who bring it about. It's a very important distinction. And it's one of the things that I love about Justin Achilles' work with the Metaplot is saying, like, look, vampires are as much victims of global civilizations as they are influencing. And we take that really, really strongly to heart. But to keep it modern, we are drawing the full conclusions of what's happened in the real world. So in that way, in one way, it's, re it's a bit harder being a vampire today. Um, because of the sort of the walls are closing in. Okay, and that kind of leads us into the question we got from uh, one of our listeners, uh, Marcus uh, Bedenk, I guess that's how it's mm -hmm. pronounced, who is concerned that because you've got this this fear, this oppressive fear of of surveillance, that while that is a main feature of the experience, maybe going into Vampire Fifth Edition to how vampires feel in the modern world, um, mm -hmm. that V five will also still allow you to explore other stories about that oppressive surveillance culture being um, so prominent all the time. I think he just he's just concerned that it's going to be too much when players may not want to ex to explore that and have it in the game. Yeah, well, I'm literally afraid of picking up a cell phone at any point so the scenario grinds to a halt and so on. But this is something, that, of course, that we have discussed internally quite a bit. Um, and there's really there's two sides to this. Uh, if you see, if you divide surveillance society into sort of little brother and big brother, you uh, you you could see that how 
as an individual masquerade breach today? And sort of, why are we so concerned with this thing? Why do we want vampires to be hunted? I think that's the best place to start, maybe. It's A, because I think vampires are defined by being always envied because they're super beautiful and cool and, and wonderful <laughs> and immortal and so on, but also always hunted and mm. hate. That's, you know, it's, it's the dynamic between Dracula and Van Helsing. It's at the core, very core of the vampire to be this yeah. thing simultaneously. Hunted monster, glorious aristocrat. Great. Yeah. So you need to be able to play both. So in the, um, uh, so, and I mean, it's in the name, the masquerade. We want vampires that are experts at hunting you will, or, and hiding. You will never know what they are until it's too late. And then we put all of the consequences from that. But I mean, today, if a vampire would go to a rave club in Stockholm and would sort of bleed all over tissue paper and start handing out little blood culottes like ecstasy on the dance floor, and this was filmed and on YouTube and so on, who the fuck would care? I mean, mm. nobody really would care. It's like, okay, it's just another crazy person. And there would be a ton of comments on sort of uh, how disgusting that blood was, or uh, it's like, do you think he has a kink for this, or is he spreading HIV? Not yeah, a single yeah, yeah. person would like believe that he's an actual vampire. So that's on one hand, little brother is not as dangerous as little brother was during the 90s. Because mm -hmm. during the 90s, when you saw something that challenged your worldview, you had no idea that those things existed and would be more likely to interpret it as something supernatural or criminal or horrible. Now it's more like, eh, shrug, kids these days, what the fuck? So th in that way, the masquerade is sort of thicker and more easy to uphold if you keep to the street level. Yeah. As, yeah. as anarch, I think you can get away with even like using Tinder for hunting if you're yes. really careful. But if you are one of the power players, you know, you have interesting companies you have maybe you have a, a whole criminal underworld that you beck and call you're running a cult meaning you're playing a camarilla vampire here you're playing one of the mm. powerful people then you have to really watch out because if you get caught up in one of these you know filters that that <laughs> that shows you that your transactions with criminal groups or your mention of the word uh, yeah, let's. I mean, let's bring a hit on that guy or whatever. If you get caught up in the actual uh, NSA or Homeland Security, and that gets to a hunter inside one of those organizations, you're done. You're gone. You're dead. Mm. They they have everything they need to you know do a daytime SWAT strike, and you're gone. So when you have power, you need to be more careful. But yeah. when you don't have power, I think you can be less careful. So the I think the anarch setting will have a more sort of freewheeling Lord of the Club Knight approach, whereas the Camarilla are more spy games and plots within plots and masters of disguise and hiding themselves and so on. Creating okay. a little separate playstyles. Maybe that, that answers the question? Yeah, I think that definitely answers the question. I think that also leads us then into the next one, because one of the things that I really, though playing the technocracy, technocracy character we didn't really interact too heavily but it was really cool to see um the the prominence of the church of cain in in the story so and to me that seemed kind of similar to elements of vampire the requiem so 
is V5, by making the Camarilla now this kind of elite group that vampires aspire to or get invited into, and then the base level is the Anarchs and just the masses of other vampires. Does that mean we're going to see in V5 some more sub-factions that fit under the umbrella of the Camarilla and also maybe also border onto the Sabbat because they represent different philosophies or needs of the vampires that aren't members of the elite clubs, as it were. Yes, I think it's the, it's the, the simple way. It's not really so much connected to Requiem. That is, like, I've always thought that it was a shame that the Sabbat got all the religion. Because that leads it, that plays back into what you said about providing um, uh, frameworks in which to explore particular stories that, you know, that whether you're a more religious vampire or you're more philosophical, uh, philosophical one or more, you know, into business and so forth, yeah. So it's like basically we wanted it to be permissible for a Camarilla character to engage in the mysteries of Cain and so on, mm. uh, because that is great play and it's archaic. And if you say the Camarilla is like the old uh, feudalist uh, way of being a vampire, it's established in the fourteen in, uh, in the in the late fourteen hundreds. It's a very feudal way that needs religion to feel old. So that is yeah. why we, it's also one of the, and, and in the meta plot, the reasoning behind this is that the Sabbat go on on their grand crusade. They are, they have been busy in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, and so on. They have been, you know, hunting for the graves of the Antediluvians and taking part in that war under, under the cover of the war, rather using the, yeah, using the confusion to be there in their fight. And meanwhile, the pressure is kind of off the Western cities. So it's more permissible for Junger, Camarilla, or any Camarilla really, to explore these issues without being instantly branded as a bot. Um, but yes, there is a, there's a, it's a fine line. Like, at what point does your interest in the legends of the Antediluvians turn into being a Cainite and a Cain worshiper? Yeah. So, and that it's more interesting to have a sliding scale than having a black and white one or zero uh, off or on so that's and of course when we are revisiting modern vampires in modern times uh, requiem has done a great job of doing one version of that of course we're going to cross some of the same territory yes sometimes we're going to come to similar conclusions but we do make a point of not outright lifting anything from requiem Um, yeah but yes this, I mean, Requiem was uh, Justin and the bunch deep rethinking of like, okay, if we did this, if we did well as artists today as as grown-ups, what would we change? And it's a similar thing that we are going through, only with a massive difference as we say, let's develop the original world, let's not blow it up and take some pieces of it. So yeah. I think it's natural that we'll cross over some of the the same things. That doesn't mean that we will absolutely never see a feature from Requiem in, in V5. I'm, I'm not ruling that out. But yeah. the approach is not that we're sort of mining the Requiem books for ideas. Rather, we're trying to make that into its own very strong own personality so that Chronicles yeah. of Darkness can continue as its own brand. That's, that's also important. Cool. Uh, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Tobias, 
White Wolf has a lot of other neat intellectual properties. So I understand right now you're focusing on One World of Darkness and getting that kicked into high gear. But uh, do you hope to make other multimedia franchises with games like, say, Exalted? Oh, absolutely. So <clears throat> the business plan we put together for, for White Wolf was really um, about building a company that can handle what we label as transmedia, uh, participatory transmedia uh, properties, IPs. So um, Exalted, for example, you saw a new book from, from Onyx just recently, um, and we'll continue to support that. I think the beautiful thing with Exalted, which is clearly our, our, our you know, next to, to Chronicles and World of Darkness, and uh, then, then Exalted is a uh, very strong brand in our portfolio. And it's great as well because it's more international, more, more um, I would say, less Western influence than, than the other brands that we have, which, which uh, we like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a couple of other uh, IPs, Big Eye, Small Mouth, um, um, Silver Age Sentinels, and so forth, that we have made some, some deals on. You'll see some, some stuff coming out of that in the future as well. But um, uh, oh, the, the, um, the whole outset with White Wolf right now is to build a company that can handle these kind of, of intellectual properties and continue to develop them. So absolutely. World of Darkness is our, our great big first run on this and our um, you know our way to, to learn and, and, and practice the things we, we think will work with this. Hmm. But yes, Exalted is up next because oh, absolutely. it yeah. has as much identity as World of Darkness has. It's a very particular, very cool fantasy world that we're super proud to, to, to have around. Yeah. Uh, but we're not going to rush it. Um, hmm. Five, ten years from now, we, we need to be a, a big company who can handle a bunch of different IPs like it. So, so uh, if we will acquire IPs or we will create new ones from the start, we'll, we'll see. But absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean you, you know what, what IP I, I would like to acquire. <laughs> I mean, there's, White Wolf has had other things. I would love to establish a new relationship with Michael Moorcock and the world it works of the Eternal Champion and so on. That would be spectacular oh, cool. but yes all in good time and so that these are just ideas floating around of course we could do things like that but we need to nail this first yeah and uh you know likewise you of course uh this summer released the storyteller's vault uh which is making great leverage of fan involvement to breathe new life into uh older editions of vampire the masquerade so i was just curious if uh you know based on that success if you're going to allow similar kind of creation clubs for other White Wolf games. Oh, absolutely. So, so, uh, and, and Storytellers Vault is a good example of what we what we call the participatory uh, aspect of the IP. Let the fans uh, create their stuff and support the fans in this. Right? They they get fifty percent of the proceedings when when a book is sold. Right? So, this is a very you know fundamental cornerstone of of how we build up an IP, allowing people to do this. Storytellers Vault should include all of the the IPs that we have eventually. It just takes. Uh, there's more time than you think to, to create all the templates and, and um, all the things that goes up onto the site. Uh, mm-hmm. If it didn't, we just released everything already. But it's just we, we're crunching them up uh, as quickly as we can right now. And so the, the, the goal is to have everything out there. On top of that, I mean, we're really looking into right now what should we do and how can we support fan-made movies and, and stuff that uh, people mm-hmm. put up on YouTube based on the properties. How can we... How can we support those people doing that in such a way that they they can do it easier uh, without risking any kind of uh, IP infringement or anything like that? Because um, that's the questions we get. What can we do and what can we not do, right? 
So be clear on that. And also, of course, help from our side so they their work gets um, uh, recognized and more people can see it, right? So there's a lot of uh, uh, thoughts going into these um, kind of fields, how to support the participatory aspect of our of our um, uh, IP. And I would say also worldofdarkness.com, our community hub will be a great uh, part of, of supporting that kind of um, um, content creation. Mm, cool. Excellent. Great to hear. This is the final question that we ask all of our interviewees. Uh, Tobias and Martin, if the two of you could be a uh, household appliance, which would you be and why? Um, screw opener. What do you call it? Corkscrew? Cork. <laughs> yeah, corkscrew. Yeah. We've never gotten that one before. <laughs> why? Why? You want to be a corkscrew? Um... I don't know, like wine, but at least get to uh, get a smell of it then, I guess. Yes. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> I I would love to be a Swedish cheese grater. It is, it, this is, I'm missing this in every country that I go to. It's like the most, it's a very sane thing for making thin and precise uh, slide, like thin slides of cheese. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's a it's a it's gloriously simple. It's mm -hmm. just you know um, yeah, it's, a, it's a sharp hole in a flat metal surface that you pull, and it always gives like that perfectly elegant. They probably have it in IKEA or something like that. Yeah, you probably have IKEA. I can recommend it. That's why Swedes, when in the store, they see the cheese the slices. You can buy no, slices. Uh, Swedish people go like, why? Why would you do that? Yeah, just buy yeah. it yeah. and do it yourself. Yeah. And why it's a, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a tool that not a lot of people have heard about. I mean, and, but when you see it, it makes complete and utter sense. <laughs> now, Martin, you you you're talking you're talking to me about it, and it's just like we we have them in the UK. We do have that type of thing naturally, because yeah. also when you talk about sliced cheese, why would you buy it already pre-sliced? Yeah. It's much the same way I think about why would you buy pre-grated cheese, bags of grated cheese? Like, is yeah, why? Filth. Filth. I, would rather, I would rather tool that lets people do it themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Excellent. I think that's uh, that's the last question done then. Yeah, it is. It is. Of course, uh, if people want to get in contact with uh, with White Wolf, how can they do that? Do you guys have like uh, an email address, maybe a community website, anything like that? Yeah, so worldofdarkness.com is a great place to just register and get the newsletters there and so forth. We try to respond as as much as possible on our Facebook, which is probably the, the biggest channel right now for people just reaching out to us with, with private messages. We have an info at whitewolf.com email address that mm -hmm. works uh, just fine as well. Um, and sign up for newsletter on the webpage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, and and Twitter, uh, there's not as much conversations going on there, but we're we're upping our resources. We spend on on our social media response uh, team right now, so uh, we should get even better on it than we are. But I actually did get an email yesterday. Um, uh, not happy at all on on 
how much much time we we spend on this uh, we should spend more on that but i got an email the other day about somebody somebody thanking us that we were so responsive so that's that's good at least we're not um, we're not there yet no, uh, we, we have focused on getting deals partners beautiful things rolling <laughs> that, that we of course can't talk about because of different reasons we're getting projects out there and started so that there are all of these licenses doing computer games and whatnot and you know uh, but the next step for us is to start showing our faces a bit more and making our voices and ideas heard a bit more mm -hmm. in social media and so on. And this, I feel, is a great place to start mm -hmm. uh, because I don't know any show that has as much expertise, insight, uh, and has, yeah, I mean, yeah, honestly, <laughs> informed and inspired me as much as Dark Days. So we're super, super happy to have our first long-form interview with you guys. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, no, thank you thank for you. Uh, yeah. taking the time. Definitely honored. And of course, if you want to get in contact with Darker Days Radio, you can visit us at facebook.com slash Darker Days Radio. We're at Darker Days Radio on Twitter. We have our Google Plus page. And also, you can send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. So again, Tobias and Martin, really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, you know do this little interview with us and uh, answering a lot of great questions and keeping the listeners informed. Perfect. Thank you. See you in the darkness. Blood and souls. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. <laughs>